Um, but great to see you, and uh, thanks for tuning in online. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really glad that you're with us. I'm part of our preaching team, and we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And we were introduced at the very first week of our series. It actually comes at the end of the Gospel of the reason why John's writing. He's writing, he says, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing we would have life in His name. So that's his agenda, that's his point. Everything he's doing is a finely crafted documentary film-like storytelling in order to help us believe in Jesus. But one of the other things that he has in mind is that we would not just believe in Jesus, but that we would get a little bit of a vision for what it looks like to follow Jesus. Last week, the last couple weeks actually, we've been looking at the interaction Jesus had with Nicodemus, and next week we'll look at most of chapter 4 where Jesus has another interaction with a Samaritan woman at a well. But today we get a little bit of a pause in the, in the Jesus action. Jesus actually isn't on camera in this scene. He's talked about, but what we get here is a picture of what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. When we're following Jesus, when we believe in Him, when we have life in His name, where is that going to take us? And so the title of today's sermon is, When Winning Looks Like Losing. When Winning Looks Like Losing. In this story, what we have is John the Baptist who's winning before God. He's doing what God has called him to do. He's successful in God's eyes, and yet it looks like he's losing. A lot of times we tell ourselves that if we just do the right thing, things will go well. If we do what we're supposed to do, if we do what God tells us to do, we'll have success. But what about when you do the right thing, you're winning in God's eyes, but the success that you imagine would come never, never comes. See, there's all these moments where we have to decide, am I going to win in God's eyes? Am I going to do the right thing? And we're not always in control of what outcome comes with it. When I was, uh, before I was a pastor, I was in sales. I was a software salesman. And there would be clients, or potential clients, I guess, who I could tell as I got into the conversation, they were not going to be a good fit for our software. And for me to do the right thing and say, hey, this probably actually isn't a great idea for you, that's winning in God's eyes, isn't it? I mean, I could just take advantage of them. They didn't know better in some cases. But to say, hey, you know what, this really isn't a good fit. You should just stick with what you're doing. That's winning in God's eyes. That's losing when it comes to my quota, my monthly income. What do you do when winning looks like losing? Some of you, you're working in a job that you don't like. It's not particularly fulfilling, but you work hard and you show up and you do the right thing and you love people through it and you do the best you can and you're putting bread on the table for your family, but it is not something you love doing. And you sometimes feel like, man, I'm doing this thing and I know it's right and I know I'm trying to be faithful, but I, I thought life was going to be better than this. Some of you are students who are trying to hold on to your integrity. You're trying to follow the Lord. You're trying to do what's right in the eyes of God. And that costs you sometimes because that leads you to hold on to some beliefs and to hold on to some behaviors that don't always fit in. And so you're trying to honor God, but you're walking through the cafeteria and it can be a lonely place to try to figure out where to sit sometimes. What do you do when winning looks like losing? Some of you are single and you are waiting for somebody that loves the Lord and is going to honor you and love you, and everyone around you is like, what's wrong with them? How come they're still single? What's the problem? They're all trying to set you up. And the problem is you're trying to do what God wants. What do you do when winning looks like losing? 
Some of you, you're caring for older parents or you're caring for a declining spouse. And you know this is what God has called you to do. And you do the hard, often invisible work of love and pouring yourself out. Some of you watching at home, this is why you're at home, is because you can't be around people because you're caring for vulnerable people. You're winning in God's eyes. Some of you, you imagine that this season of your life would be the season where you'd get to do a little bit more for you. Maybe you're in retirement and you're caring for somebody and you're going, man, I thought retirement was going to be more travel and I thought it was going to be more fun and I thought it was going to be more me. What do you do when winning looks like losing? Moms, what do you do when you have talents, you have abilities, and you have career dreams, and you have hopes, and whether you're working or not, maybe you've had to kind of sacrifice a little bit of that to love your kids, and you know it's right, and you know it's making a long-term difference, but it sure doesn't feel like it now. Some of you are older. You're advanced in years, and you're more loving than you've ever been. You're more godly than you've ever been. You're wiser than you've ever been. You have more to offer than you've ever had to offer, and you have fewer people interested in what you have to offer than ever before. You can sit there and you go, man, I feel like I've grown into this oak of righteousness, and no one wants to sit under the shade. No one's interested. No one's asking. I have more to offer. I have more insight. No one's asking. What do you do? When you're winning in God's eyes, but it looks and feels sometimes like you're losing. See, that's what's happening to John the Baptist. He'd been baptizing people. Lots of people were coming out to be baptized by him, including Jesus. And now Jesus and his disciples are off in a nearby area, and they're also doing some baptizing. It says in chapter 4 that Jesus himself wasn't doing the baptizing, but his disciples are. And so the disciples of John, which is actually a smaller number because some of the disciples of John had left to go be with Jesus, now the ones who are left are going, John, hey man, we were having, like, we were like on this, you know, up and to the right thing of people coming to be baptized, and now it's shrinking a little bit. Now people are going over there. What do you do when you're a leader and you're doing what's right? And it costs you. That's what they're saying. John, what's up, man? All these people, all these people are going to this other place. All these people are going to, to Jesus. It, it feels like we're losing. It looks like we're losing. John doesn't seem particularly bothered by it. And here's the thing, it's going to get worse. Did you see that little footnote in verse 24? For John had not yet been put in prison. In other words, what's coming for John is not just being kind of ignored by the masses relative to what it used to be, but his faithfulness, his being willing to speak truth and to confront the sin of a political leader is actually going to make it where he's in prison. And it gets worse because once he's in prison, he's going to actually for this same thing be beheaded. See, we want to go, oh, well, but if you're faithful and if you do the right thing, just hang in there. It'll eventually get better. Not for John the Baptist. Doesn't get better. Not in this life. What do you do when you've been faithful, but it looks like you lost? We get some insights from John about his perspective. He's not rattled the same way his disciples are. What do we do when winning looks like losing? That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's pray, and then we'll 
get into John's answer to that question. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good. And we pray that you would use this message, that you'd use your word to help us to stay faithful, even when doing the right thing, when winning in your eyes looks like losing to the rest of the world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. How do you keep going in faithfulness when winning looks like losing? Well, John has some ideas here for us. There's three things that seem to be filling his heart and mind that make it where he's not so rattled by this thing. And the first that he mentions is this. He says we need to recognize God's sovereignty. If we're going to stay faithful when winning looks like losing, we have to recognize God's sovereignty, that everything good we have is actually a gift from God. Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John, John, all these people are going over there to get baptized now. They've all left. They've all gone somewhere else. What do we do? John goes, hey, don't worry. Don't worry. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. He's going, guys, you know what? God's in charge of the results of this thing. When all the people were coming to us, that was a gift of God. When all the people are going somewhere else, that's a gift of God. This has never been about me, is kind of what he's saying. This has never been about me engineering the results. This is about God being in charge of his world. One of the most amazing stories of when winning looks like losing is the story of Job. The story of Job is an incredible story of this man who's blameless in God's eyes and does what is right, and yet Satan comes to God and says, you know what, God, the only reason he trusts you is because you give him all this stuff. What if we take it all away? And so Job's health begins to decline, and Job's children all die. And Job says the same thing as John the Baptist. Job says this, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His wife says, oh, Job, curse God and die. He says, no, 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 shall we receive good from the Lord's hand and not also evil? And the author goes out of his way to say, and in all this, Job did not sin. Meaning, it's okay to say good stuff comes from God, bad stuff can come from God. But in the midst of it, we praise God. So you got to recognize God's sovereignty. You have to reframe the whole thing, that this is all about living in God's world as one of God's people, and what God thinks is ultimately what matters. I experience this. I, I'm not in charge of the results of preaching as much as I try to be. Right? I can ensure that a sermon is bad. I can't make it great. Right? Like I, I have time. I mean, I, I pray. I, I pray so many things throughout the week as I prepare and as I prepare for Sunday. And there's so much that I long for God to do in my heart and in your heart and our hearts together as we hear from God through his word, as I get to have the privilege of preaching the gospel. And yet I'm totally aware that there are times when I take these notes at the end of the day and toss them in the trash and go, Lord, that was an amazing sermon. Thank you. I don't actually have the guts to say that, but there are times in my heart where I think it. And a lot of times when that's the case, you know what happens? You know all the great stories I hear? None. Other times, I go, God, thank you that you're sovereign. I hope, I hope something came of that and I toss it in the draft. 
And the number of times that someone will say, oh, you said this and it changed my life. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. I don't, I don't think. Or like, you didn't even understand what I said, but it changed your life. So great. I mean, like, and this is what I do. Like, God's in charge of this, right? I, and this is what the Bible says over and over, right? One, one sows, another, another waters. It's God who gives the growth. God is in charge. You are being faithful. You are winning in God's eyes, and that's enough. When it earns you praise, that's from God. When it doesn't, that's from God too. What do you do when winning feels like losing? You recognize God's sovereignty. There's a second thing that we do is we rejoice in our smaller role. You want to stay faithful when winning looks like losing? Rejoice in your smaller role. This is what John says in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I have said I am not the Christ but I've been sent before him. John says, hey guys, listen, I know you're all bent out of shape about this, but don't you remember how I've said forever I'm not the Christ? And they're like, yeah, we know. We've heard it a million times. I'm just imagining that every time John said, I'm not the Christ, they're like, here we go again, right? Because he said it over and over and over. In fact, there's a spot that's just really interesting a couple chapters back. If you want to swipe left to John chapter 1, verse 20, there's an incredible little place here. Everybody's asking John the Baptist, who are you? Are you who are you? Are you the Christ? What are you? Who are you? Look at, the lang- look at the wording of verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What a weird, what a weird construction of that sentence, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it just make more sense if they were like, who are you? Are you the Christ? And he's like, no, I'm not the Christ. Move on. This is a weird way to say it. He confessed, but did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What is this saying? This is saying that John believes it's a good confession, it's good news that he is not the Christ. This is a big part of his mentality. I am not the Christ. So then when they ask him about it, he goes, guys, you remember what I said? I'm not the Christ. Here's what I want to do together. On the count of three, let's say this. I am not the Christ. Ready? One, two, three. I am not the Christ. At home, join in with us. One, two, three. I am not the Christ. Isn't that good news? That you are not the Savior. You're not the Savior of your family. You're not the Savior of your children. You're not the Savior of your spouse. Some of us live with unbelievable pressure and anxiety and weight because we act like we are the Christ. We're not. You have a smaller role. You're not the star of this team. And it's amazing you just get to have a role on the team. There's a lot of things that we say that we just don't really believe. Like, there's all kinds of things we'll say. We'll say, hey, with all due respect, uh, which is what I say before I rip you, right? Uh, We'll say, oh, no, 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 it's not about the money. Then why are we talking about the money? You go, oh, that's a great idea. I'll I'll get in touch with you. No, you won't. We could do it now if we, we cared about this. One of my favorites as a former athlete is, I just want to do what's best for the team. Well, what's best for the team is awesome when you get to be the person that takes the last second shot. 
But what about when you end up like I did, my freshman year of college, had an amazing season. I was a designated hitter, freshman All-American, benched Big Ten tournament, because the other guy on our team who was the Big Ten player of the year had to be the DH. And I lied when I said, I just care what's best for the team. No. We care what's best for the team as long as we still get to be a big part of the team. But John says, I've never been the star of the show. I've always been the sidekick. Look at what he says in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, listen, I'm not the groom. I'm not the star of this wedding. I am the friend of the groom. The closest we have would be like the best man. I'm the best man. And what's the job of the best man? Encourage the groom. Make sure he shows up on time. Provide some food for the whole day while the girls are getting ready and the guys are standing around. Give a speech. But listen, give a speech at the, at the reception that doesn't make it about you but makes it about him. That's the best man. That's what the best man does. And John goes, I'm the best man. I'm here for the groom. This is not about me. Look at him. And the reality is, is even when we point to other people, people still want to look at us, right? Like, have you ever, have you ever tried to point at something to a little kid? Right? Like, you're trying to show a kid, oh, it's, it's over there. What does the kid inevitably do? They look at your finger. You're like, no, 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 it's not here. It's beyond it's beyond here. It's what I'm pointing at. And they're like, just keep looking at the finger. <laughs> and here's the thing. That's how a lot of us are. We just keep looking at the messenger. We just keep looking at the person. The person's pointing to Jesus. That's what we need to do. We need to be reflecting Jesus. The light is not in ourselves. We're the moon, not the sun. The moon has no light beaming out of it. The moon is only reflecting the sun's light. That's what we are. That's what John is. Rejoice in your smaller role. You're not the Christ. You're not the groom. You're not the hero. The amazing thing is you get to even be part of the team at all. Isn't that amazing? That God ever uses us to accomplish his purposes. Wow. Incredible. Here's the third lesson from John is to remember kingdom math. You will stay faithful even when winning looks like losing if you remember kingdom math. We see this in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is funny, by the way, to me, that the guy who's in the desert wearing clothes made out of camel's hair and eating bugs is like, I'm going to decrease. I mean, they're a little bit like, I think you've hit the bottom. I don't, know, I don't know where we, I don't know how much further down we can go from here. But he's going, he must increase, I must decrease. Now, that is not how we like to think of it, is it? We like to think, he must increase, and I must increase also. Or we think, he must increase, and I might decrease but only for a little while because then I'll increase again. That's not what he says. He must increase, I must 
decrease. This is kingdom math. Your importance, though we're made in the image of God, though God has made it where the church filled by the Spirit is plan A and there is no plan B, we still must decrease. And the, what happens throughout our lives as followers of Jesus is this ever-increasing awareness that He must increase and I must decrease. This is kingdom math. Now this, we might just go, well, gosh, how is that worth it? I mean, how is it worth it to go from prominent to obscure to imprisoned to dead? How is it worth it to lose maybe our reputation, maybe some level of income, maybe some level of influence for the sake of honoring Jesus? How is that worth it? Well, here's how it's worth it. It's the kingdom math. This is what John, not the Baptist, but the gospel writer summarizes in verses 31 to 36. How does this math make sense? Well, it's because verse 31, Jesus is above all. Verse 32, Jesus bears witness about God. Verse 34, Jesus gives the Spirit of God. Who can give the Spirit of God but God? But God. What's this saying? Jesus is God. Verse 35, Jesus has all things in His hands. And verse 36, Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. That's why it's worth it. If at the end of our lives, people see more of Jesus and less of us, that's okay. Why? Because He's above all, and He's God, and He's sending the Spirit, and He reigns and rules over all things, and He gives eternal life. And all of eternity will have plenty of moments of us going, worthy are you, Jesus. Worthy are you and only you. At our worst, you loved us. At our worst, you died for us. Great are you, Lord Jesus. That's our song. That's our story. This isn't about us being glory thieves, right? Like, like, like a, a, one expression I heard was like, stop photobombing Jesus. <laughs> and you know what photobombing is, right? Someone's taking a nice picture and you're like, look at me, right? In the background. A lot of us want to do that. This picture's about Jesus. Stop photobombing him. Stop trying to draw the attention away. Let him be the star of the show because he's the star. This is hard. And one of the things that has been just on my mind a lot in these last few years as I'm more and more approaching middle age, had a birthday last week, turned 41, feels like I'm getting older. I know some of you are like, oh, that's cute, 41. <laughs> Right, you, that, you feel like that about how I feel about Seth, who just turned 30 yesterday. And you're like, wow. Some of you are like, I, he's only 30? Yeah, he's only 30. But, but I, I've, been, I've been thinking about this, right? Like, as you get older, you start realizing all the things you're not going to do, all the impact you're not going to make. Right? I, seriously, like, I'll sit and look at my books on my shelf, and I'll go, I'm never going to read a bunch of these books, Ever. <laughs> I still like that they're on my shelf. They made me look smart, but I'm never going to read them. <laughs> and, and it's hard. It's hard to realize that all the things you thought you were going to be to make a name for yourself aren't going to happen. One of my mentors who went to be with the Lord a couple years ago, Tom Schrader, he founded East Valley Bible Church Redemption Gilbert. He said one of the hardest things for him about aging was that you went from being a who's who to a who's he. We're going to be obscure. 
small and forgotten. My guess is most of us in this room could not name our great-grandparents. I know a few of you are like, oh, no, I'm an Ancestry.com platinum member. and I, Okay, got it. <laughs> but most of us, listen, most of us couldn't name our great-grandparents, let alone say anything meaningful about them. And the truth is, for those of us lucky enough to have great-grandkids, they won't know our names either. The best we can hope for is a nice turnout at our funeral and family and friends who miss us, and then we're forgotten. Our great-grandkids won't know our names. But here's the beauty of the kingdom math, is that Jesus will. In Luke chapter 10, there's this place where Jesus has sent out his disciples to do all this incredible kingdom work, and they're thrilled because the demons listened to them and obeyed what they had to say. Here's what Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Your great-grandchildren won't remember your name, but Jesus will. This is the amazing kingdom math. That he's the one who laid down his importance, even though he's the most important. And as we lift him up, even as it drives us to, into obscurity in the world's eyes, we're never forgotten by him. He knows us and he sees us and he knows our names and we are eternally his. Oh, that's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you hold us fast and the way that you use us to accomplish your purposes. And God, we do it imperfectly and we know we're not really in charge of the results. But God, we want to be faithful. We want to win in your eyes. We want to do what you've called us to do. We want to love like you love and obey like you obey and take stands for what's right. God, we don't hope that it costs us, but we know it will. And so help us to endure. Help us to remember your sovereignty. Help us to rejoice in a smaller role. And God, help us to remember the math of the kingdom. That you must increase, we must decrease. Help us to be satisfied with that. That if you're enough, we have everything we need. We pray it in Jesus' name.